Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, When You Pray. It's based upon the lectionary readings for July 28, 2019. Let's start with the hard stuff and acknowledge that this week's gospel reading is full of potential landmines. Ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. Everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. I tell you, even though the friend whose door you bang on at midnight to ask for bread will not get up and give you anything because you are his friend, at least because of your persistence, he will get up and give you whatever you need. When I call these famous words of Jesus landmines, I'm not saying he intentionally embedded suffering or danger into his disciples' lives. What I'm saying is that this gospel reading has a history of interpretation within the church that the church should not be proud of. Read the wrong way, the lection renders prayer transactional, inviting us to believe that God is a cosmic gumball machine into which we can insert our prayers like so many shiny quarters. Like some of you, I was raised to believe in a gumball God. For years, I believed that fervent, persistent prayer heals diseases, prevents car accidents, feeds hungry children in faraway countries, fends off nightmares, prevents premature death, saves broken relationships, and stops the bad guys. But then life rose up and kicked me in the butt. Diseases didn't get better. Car accidents happened. I had nightmares. Babies starved. Young people died. Relationships disintegrated. And the bad guys thrived. When I asked other Christians to explain these discrepancies to me, I received two answers. One, you need to pray harder, longer, and with more faith. Or two, God did answer your prayers. He said no. Both of those answers broke my heart. No, worse than that, both of those answers hardened my heart. Over time, prayer, which used to be easy, became excruciatingly hard. These days when I sit down to pray, I have to do weary battle with one persistent question. Why bother? All of that to say, I come to this week's lectionary with trepidation, afraid of doing harm, afraid of reopening old wounds. To ask what role prayer plays in the face of ongoing tragedy, injustice, and oppression in our world is to raise the hardest questions I can think of about God, questions I don't know how to answer. Does God intervene directly in human affairs? Does such intervention or lack of it depend in any way on our asking? Can prayer change God? Do our prayers have tangible effects on other people, even when those people have no idea that we're praying for them? To be fair, I know plenty of people for whom these questions are irrelevant and even heretical. I have friends and family members who pray with full confidence for everything from parking spots and lost house keys to cancer remission and Ivy League acceptances for their children. They pray expecting answers and they apparently receive them. Or so I am told, and who am I to question their testimonies? All I can say is that my experiences with prayer have never been so certain or seamless. If your prayer life is equally fraught, then what can we honestly make of Jesus' teaching in this gospel passage? 
What can we carry away that might still feel authentic and life-giving? Here are a few possibilities. Lord, teach us. The reading begins with the disciple approaching Jesus and asking for instruction. Lord, teach us to pray. It's a simple, straightforward request, but here's what surprised me this week. I've never made it. Have you? Have you ever asked Jesus to teach you to pray? Did it ever occur to you that such a thing is askable, or that your asking might give God joy? Here's the thing. The disciples were not ignorant or inexperienced when it comes to prayer. They were devout Jews who had most likely grown up attending Sabbath services, lifting their hands upward in worship, or lying prone on the ground to make their confessions. They knew how to pray. What they sought was not better technique. So what was it? What did they observe in Jesus when he prayed? We can't know for sure, but I'll hazard some guesses. Intimacy, belonging, trust, peace, a closeness that was transformative and nourishing, fresh vision, renewed perspective, greater strength, and deeper empathy. Lord, teach us to pray. In other words, teach us to attain what you have attained. Teach us to be with God as you are with God, to commune as you commune, to communicate as you communicate. Teach us to unlearn those false beliefs and false promises that keep us from praying as you do. We confess that we are impatient, self-absorbed, and transactional creatures, greedy for quick cancers and even quicker gains. Unmake all of that. Help us to start afresh. Teach us to pray. When you pray. When you pray, Jesus says to his disciples in response to their request, and already I'm in trouble. When I pray? Shoot. How about if I pray? Because really, all attempts at self-delusion aside, when do I pray? When it's January 1st and I've made yet another New Year's resolution to have a daily quiet time with God? When I've read my millionth book on the theology or the history or the psychology or the neurology of prayer? And I decide with great zeal to give the practice another shot? When I promise I'll keep you in my thoughts and prayers because your situation scares or saddens or paralyzes me so badly that I can't think of anything else to say. When I am in full panic mode and the only options available in my desperation are prayer or collapse. When you pray, Jesus says casually, as if prayer in the life of a disciple is a given, a matter of course, a practice so natural and so intrinsic, he might as well say, when you breathe or when you blink or when your heart beats, Prayer is not a special activity reserved for special times, special places, or special people. Prayer is not the private property of a pious few. Prayer is mercifully ordinary. Prayer is what we're wired for. Prayer is what God's children do. And that, if we'll pause and think about it for a minute, is a reason to both relax and rejoice. It's an invitation to enter into prayer gently and with quiet confidence to trust it as we trust oxygen, food, or water, to lean into it as we lean into the strength of our own bones, tendons, and muscles. Prayer will hold us because it is for us. We know and are known in prayer. Ask, seek, knock. Yes, back to the landmines. 
But what if we begin with a possible synonym for Jesus' famous ask-seek-knock trifecta? What about yearn, or hunger, or want, and want fiercely, persistently, insatiably, and passionately? What if Jesus' lesson here is a lesson of permission, permission to name our longings, to acknowledge the desires which drive and haunt us, to state without reservation or embarrassment that all is not okay, that we are not yet full, that God's kingdom has not yet come, and that even though it's midnight and we know our door pounding at our friend's front step is mightily inconvenient to the surrounding universe, we don't care, and we're going to keep pounding because we still need bread right now. Ask, seek, knock, keep knocking. Go to your friend's house and wake him up. Don't let him go back to sleep until he hauls himself out of bed. When you pray, say, your kingdom come. When you pray, say, give us each day our daily bread. When you pray, say, forgive us our sins. When you pray, say, do not bring us to the time of trial. Ask, seek, knock, keep knocking. Notice that there is nothing dainty or delicate about this teaching from Jesus. His invitation is muscular, assertive, aerobic, and pushy. It is longing named, named, and named again. It is wholly yearning, insisting on itself to a God who can more than handle our ferocity. It is, in a word, imperative. I wonder how my prayer life would change if I accepted Jesus' call to prayer as a call to wrestle, to struggle, and to contend with God. Apparently, this God is not too invested in my politeness. Who knew? How much more? Read carefully, and you'll find another surprise. There is only one promise in this entire gospel lesson. Only one, and it is not the one I was raised to desire or expect. Jesus concludes his teaching on prayer with a striking sentence. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What Jesus promises us in answer to our prayers is the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's all. There is no other promise or guarantee. How the church devolved from this to prosperity theology is beyond me, but here we are. Here's the actual promise. When we pray, when we persist in prayer, when we name our longings in prayer without fear or compromise, God will never fail to give us God's own abundant, indwelling, and overflowing self as the answer we actually need. When we contend in prayer, God will not withhold God's loving, consoling, healing, transforming, and empowering spirit from us. When it comes to no-holds-barred, absolutely self-giving generosity, God's answer to all of our prayers will always be yes. Maybe this yes is what the disciples sensed in Jesus when they watched him pray. Maybe the presence of the Spirit radiating through Jesus is what compelled them to go deeper in their own prayer lives. Whatever the yes was, it suffused Jesus' whole being. However the Spirit manifested herself in Jesus' life, she was so beautiful and so compelling, the disciples wanted to experience her too. So here's the question for us. Do we consider the yes of God's Spirit a sufficient response to our prayers? If God's guaranteed answer to our petitions is God's own self, can we live with that? 
I'll be honest, sometimes I can and sometimes I can't. It's not easy to let go of my transactional gumball god, idol though he is. The truth is it's hard to persist in prayer and not receive the answers I'm hoping for. It's hard to accept the Holy Spirit as God's perfect gift when I'd rather receive healing from my son's chronic headaches or an end to Trump's toxic presidency or lasting freedom from anxiety or common-sense gun control in America or some reliable hope in the face of global climate change. My love for God, I realize, is thinner than I thought it was. Often I want stuff from God much more than I want God. Often I want God to sweep in and fix everything, much more than I want God's Spirit to fill and accompany me so that I can do my part to heal the world. Resting in God's yes requires vulnerability, patience, courage, discipline, and trust, traits I can only cultivate in prayer. So we pray. We pray because Jesus wants us to. We pray because it's what God's children do. We pray because we yearn and our yearning is precious to God. And we pray because what we need most, whether we recognize it or not, is God's own spirit pouring God's self into us. With words, without words, through laughter, through tears, in hope and in despair, our prayers usher in God's spirit and remind us that we are not alone in this broken, aching world. God's Spirit is our yes. God's Spirit is our guarantee. For books this week, Dan reviews Khaled Khalifa's Death is Hard Work, a novel. Since the Arab Spring that began in 2011, Syria has become what the former Secretary of State Warren Christopher called, in reference to Bosnia, a problem from hell. About 500,000 people have died. Over half the population of 22 million people have fled the country or been internally displaced. President Bashar al-Assad has bombed his own country into oblivion. A dozen countries now fight a proxy war there, along with twice that many insurgent militia groups. This Syria is the setting for the fifth novel by Khaled Khalifa, who was born in Aleppo and has refused to leave his home in Damascus. As Abdel Latif lay dying in a Damascus hospital, he made a last wish to his youngest son, Bulbul, that his body be returned to his ancestral village of Anabia for burial. In a rare moment of courage, Bulbul acted firmly and without fear. He would fulfill his father's request. As the novel unfolds, there are good reasons why Bulbul comes to regret his decision. Normally, it would take only a few hours to travel to Anabia. But as we know, Syria is now a place of an apocalypse. In case compassion fatigue or the rapid-fire news cycles have made us forget about Syria, Khalifa reminds us, it is a place of mass graves, endless checkpoints where militia of unknown origins acts with violent impunity. The dreaded military police that's controlled by the government, sporadic water, food and electricity, streets that are a wasteland, curfews, snipers, burned-out cars starvation, the mass exodus of civilians, morgues so overflowing that families have only a limited time to claim the bodies of their loved ones before they are disposed. The surname or place of birth on your identity card could mean death or disappearance, and the result of all this human suffering is a failed revolution. 
Bobo's trip is further complicated because he and his two siblings, Hussein and Fatima, haven't even seen each other in four years and have been estranged for ten. Their father was also a wanted man for his revolutionary opposition to the regime. And in this land of death, nobody even expected a normal burial anymore. Rites and rituals meant nothing now. Why not bury him wherever it was most convenient? Why risk their own lives on such a fool's errand? As the trip took many days rather than a few hours, the rotting corpse in their minivan becomes a metaphor for the entire country. Death in Syria, writes Khalifa, has become a terrifying flood-drowning everyone. No one even laments that death no longer provokes outrage. In this sense, there is nothing at all special about Abdel's death, or anything deeply human about his request for a proper burial that would or should evoke pity. Death was way too close to everyone, and there were way too many bodies to be shocked by anything. In other words, the exceptional had become habitual, and tragedies were simply mundane. Perhaps that was the worst part about this war. For films this week, Dan reviews Brene Brown, The Call to Courage. This one-hour motivational talk by Brene Brown was filmed in front of a live audience at UCLA and then released on Netflix on April 19, 2019. Brown is a research professor at the University of Houston, where she holds the Huffington Foundation, Brene Brown Endowed Chair at the Graduate College of Social Work. Across the last 20 years, she has established an unlikely niche in the market of ideas that has become wildly successful on a popular level. Her academic research on shame, vulnerability, and courage. Her research has led to five best-selling books translated into 32 languages, and a 2010 TEDx talk that has become one of the top five most viewed TED Talks ever, with 38 million views. In this talk, Brown circles back to her 2012 book, Daring Greatly, and what she calls her God moment that changed everything for her, namely a quote from a speech by Teddy Roosevelt in 1910, quote, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But one does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. The path to true courage, says Brown, passes through authentic vulnerability. And lastly, for poems this week, John Berryman's Address to the Lord, 8. A prayer for the self. Who am I worthless that you spent such pains and take my pains again? I do not understand, but I believe. John Coles respond with wit to the teasing breeze. Induct me down my secrets. Stiffen this heart to stand their horrifying cries O cushion the first, the second shocks, will to a halt in midair their demons who could be at me. May fade before, sweet morning on sweet morning, I wake my dreams, my fan mail go astray, and do me little goods I have not thought of, ingenious and beneficial father. Ease in their passing, my beloved friends, all others too I've cared for in a traveling life, anyone, anywhere indeed. 
lift up sober toward truth, a scared self-estimate. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for July 28, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.